be working our way through Revelation is the solution, and the week after that is the worship. So uh, we'll be working our way through Revelations chapter 4 and 5. These are unique chapters in Scripture. Uh, <coughs> they take us right into the presence of God and into the throne room of heaven. Uh, Revelations 4 and 5 are, are kind of a foundation to the whole book of Revelation, which describes the, the justice and the judgments of God uh, in a future day. And uh, you might ask, what right does God have to judge anybody on any issue? And the answer is found in Revelation 4 and 5. You need to understand it. As someone has said, we need to understand God rightly or all kinds of things will go wrong. And, uh, and so we'll uh, be taking a time just to kind of go back to basics this morning and look at what John sees about God <coughs> in heaven. Uh, there are several passages throughout scripture where an individual is taken into the presence of God, into heaven, and sees things that are almost beyond description. <coughs> There's a passage in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah all of a sudden is there and he tells us what he sees, some similarities to what we will read this morning. And then Ezekiel has a, a lengthy passage to open his book in Ezekiel chapter 1. Uh, Daniel has uh, uh, glimpses into the throne room of God and also here uh, what we'll be looking at over the next uh, three Sundays uh, here in Revelation 4 and 5. <coughs> and I think it's important to, uh, to look and study these chapters. I suppose if I was to give you homework today to take home, it would be to answer the question, why study this stuff? It's so otherworldly. It's so far out. What does it have to do with anything here in our real down-to-earth, boots-on-the-ground world? It just seems irrelevant. I, I invite you to discuss that question at the dinner table or somewhere uh, and come up with an answer for it. If it's irrelevant, this is not good. I think it's more relevant than we could ever imagine. Uh, it's all about God. And, uh, and so... Uh, I'm going to read a quote to begin with. Uh, it's uh, written by an author named A.W. Tozer. Uh, he uh, lived between uh, 1897 and 1963. He was an American, a pastor, uh, a writer, and a sort of a mystic. Tozer didn't write books about how to have a happy Christian marriage, which are great, or how to uh, you know, grow your church real big, fine. He wrote about God most of the time. He was obsessed with God and having the church understand who God is because that's the foundation of everything. <coughs> In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, not a very big book, but I would say if I was ever stranded on a desert island and I got two books to take, it would be the Bible and The Knowledge of the Holy. You can have your choices, but uh, that would be mine. It's small but mighty, that book. In it, he says this. He says, quote, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. <clears throat> He's concerned about our concept of God being coming lower and lower and being diminished until you can almost fit it on a bumper sticker. And Tozer's mission in life was to enlarge it to where it should be again. Let's read Revelation chapter 4 before I pray. 
Revelation 4, verse 1. I don't know if it's going to be on the screen or not, but uh, <coughs> you can follow in your Bible if you have one with you. After this, says John, the apostle, John the apostle wrote Revelation. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and it was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. When the living creatures give honor and glory, thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Sometimes in the storms of life, be it for you or me as an individual or even as a church, the waves get whipped up pretty high and they obscure our view of God. And when we lose sight of God, our faith starts to slip and grow smaller. Our prayers grow weak and we're in trouble. We must not lose our vision and our understanding and our sight of God. Let me pray. Father, we all have our favorite little pictures in our minds of God, of what you are like. But I must be quick to confess, we often end up boxing you in. We try to contain you. We try to control you. We keep you much, much smaller than you are because we're more comfortable that way. I pray this morning and over the next few weeks that you would break open those little boxes and our fossilized pictures of God and let the light shine in and change our lives and our church, we pray. Amen. <coughs> the word throne occurs ten times in this short chapter and five more times in the next chapter. It's all about the authority and the majesty of God on his throne. The throne of God is at the center of the universe. If you've ever wondered what's there, is it a, is it a particle? Is it a, is it a law of physics? No, it's a person. 
sitting on his throne, ruling. This is very important for all of us to understand and never forget. One thing we notice uh, as we begin to read this admittedly strange passage is uh, some words that John uses, and uh, he uses the word like and appearance and uh, resemble quite often as he's trying to describe God. He, he says he heard a voice like a trumpet. It wasn't a trumpet. It was like a trumpet. Uh, he speaks of the one on the throne having the appearance of jasper and, and uh, carnelian or ruby in some translations. Uh, he speaks of a rainbow that resembled an emerald. Didn't say it was. It resembled. John is uh, scratching here to try to describe things to us. One thing we must understand uh, when we read scripture is that there were many genre of literature contained in scripture, kinds of literature. There's law and legal stuff in the first five chapters, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's uh, historical literature, chronicles, kings, etc. There's poetry and wisdom literature, Psalms, Song of Solomon, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. There's prophetic literature, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, Zephaniah, etc. There's biographical literature, painting the story of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. More historical in Acts, personal letters in the epistles. One must understand what kind of literature you're reading in order to understand it properly and interpret it properly. Example, if you're reading a newspaper, there's the front page news. You go in a little ways and there's editorial literature. Uh, there's the want ads at the back of the paper, if they still have them, I don't know. There's the sports page. And, uh, and you don't read them all the same. They all are written for different purposes and the reader must understand the genre of literature that he or she is reading in order to get it right. And so <coughs> one must understand that there's a type of literature in the Bible called apocalyptic literature. I've been learning a little bit about this. Uh, apocalyptic literature, uh, of which Revelation is apocalyptic literature, uh, is, is, uh, is stranger than the other stuff. It, uh, it often is it's full of symbolism and symbols, and uh, that's important to understand. Those symbols d uh, convey truth although they're not necessarily literally what he's seeing. It's more like he uses, he uses numbers and pictures and lion, lamb, uh, living creatures, things like that. They're, they portray truth about God, and it's important to understand that. You don't sit down and try to draw one of these living beings that we just read about. could be nightmarish. But you, you, you see what's being described there, and you understand we're being taught truth here about something. And that's what's contained in this picture. Also, angels are prevalent uh, and other beings in, uh, in uh, apocalyptic literature. Often angels come to visit the person who's trying to understand wh what he's seeing and they explain some things to him just to help him along. But John has entered another world and he's trying to convey back to us in our world, our physical time-bound, material-bound world, uh, what he's seeing in that other world, and it's not easy. He has to use symbols. He has to use language such as like and the appearance of and look like sort of stuff to try to convey to us what he's seeing. Example, suppose, uh, suppose we visited a rainforest and uh, a tribal people 
who had lived there all of their lives and all of their ancestors had never been outside of their home in the rainforest. And we're trying to describe to them something of our world called electricity. How would you do that? You have to talk in terms that they understand and, can, and take the things that we know are real and somehow translate them into some semblance of understanding that they would have. And you, so describing electricity, you might say, well, uh, there's something like vines, like long, thin strands, like vines. And, uh, and they, they, they contain a powerful spirit. And, and, and the, the vine is attached to the waterfall. That would be Ni the Niagara generating station. Uh, but it's, it's, it comes out of the waterfall. And the spirit travels through the vine, over the mountains, across the valley, and comes to your hut. And then the vine comes into your hut. And there's something in your hut like a box. And the vine attaches to the box. And then the box gets hot. And you put your meat on it, and it cooks. And, and you put a container of water on it, and it boils. And the, the primitive person is kind of going, oh, OK, yeah, I think I get that. He doesn't get anything. <laughs> Not for lack of intelligence. He just doesn't have the terms. He has never experienced our world. He, no use trying to describe copper wire and resistors and conductors and capacitors and radios and TVs and semiconductors. So you use language such as looked like, appeared like, something like to describe something absolutely so different it isn't funny. That's what's going on here. And we need to understand that as we, uh, as we read Revelation chapter 4. <coughs> so, folks, we, we are the jungle people. And John has traveled to the corner of... Uh, Young and Bluer, and he's trying to describe to us what he sees there. How do you describe the presence of God? How do you describe the throne room of God? Well, we're going to take a shot at it here. I'm glad he tried. It's fascinating. So we have the appearance of Jasper. It's kind of like diamond or opal. <coughs> we have uh, carnelian is like ruby, fiery, deep, rich red color. Something like a rainbow, uh, uh, looks like an emerald. This is all around the throne. We have the sea of glass, clear as crystal. Apparently, uh, the word for crystal in Greek is, means sparkling or glittering. And so we have this all around the front of the throne. How big it is, who knows? Is it miles? Is it 100 yards? Don't know, not told. Uh, it's just spectacular. <coughs> I've never seen the crown jewels in the Tower of London, but I'm told they're spectacular. They are laid out on, uh, of course, carefully chosen dark background of velvet, maybe in glass boxes with lighting strategically placed to shine on the jewels and bring forth their best, bring forth their glory. This is the, the enhancement of those Jewels And the people that want to see the jewels walk past them in a line, apparently, very well ordered. And you must not stop in front of the jewels. Nobody can stop. You have to keep moving. But as you keep moving, and these jewels, there's, there's like sword handles encrusted with rubies and diamonds. There's the, there are dishes and goblets and, and the, the crown itself. And uh, the light shining on it. 
And as you move past, every time you move just a few inches, of course, the light is reflecting a little bit differently than it was three inches back this way. And you're seeing a continual newness <coughs> and a continual new vision of the glory of those jewels. And, and I think John is seeing something like that in heaven as he's trying to take in and describe. And so he's using terms like of, of precious stones that are familiar to these people to, to describe because people of his day, they would go, oh, rubies, oh, diamonds, woo, sardius, oh, jasper, you know, like, and it's not that, but it's like that, only it's so much more. And that's what John is doing here as he describes the resplendent, effulgent glory of God coming out of the throne. There's an English word that sometimes theologians use to describe God, and it's the word ineffable. God is ineffable, they say. <clears throat> what does that mean? The dictionary definition is too great or extreme to be experienced or described in words. Too great or extreme to be experienced or described with words. You'll notice here, God is not described. Only the effects of God's presence are described. He is the cause of these effects. All of these colors and these things that just bedazzled John so strongly are merely the effects of the invisible cause of those things. And it's quite remarkable to think about that. Let's keep reading here. Uh, the 24 elders, verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. <coughs> and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Stop there for a moment. Who are these 24 elders? Well, lots of ink has been spilled on that question. Are they human? Are, were they like, is this the Hall of Fame where great humans from, from uh, throughout biblical history are, are get a seat on one of these 24? Don't know. Are they angels? Maybe they're not human. Maybe they're angels or other creatures. We're not told. There are some reasons to think they might be kind of angelic beings. We do know they wear robes of white. And I'll bet we've never seen anything so white. And they have crowns of gold on their head. Crowns are marks of achievement. Crowns, you are worthy of your crown that you wear, right? You don't put a crown on just anybody. There's some reason why you put that crown on that person's head. They have to be worthy of it. We'll talk more about these crowns in a few minutes. But there we have these 24 mysterious elders around the throne. Uh, and then... Um, Verse 5, from the throne come flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. There's nothing more, nothing that makes you feel more scared more fast. I don't think that was good English, but uh, than a crack of thunder that's really close, right? Like you're like, ah! <coughs> and, uh, and, yet, and yet this majestic, awesome, fear-inducing phenomenon is bursting forth from where the throne is, and John writes this down. And, uh, and then we have, uh, we have the, before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. What's that? Well, we're told, actually. These are the seven spirits of God. And what are they? Don't know. Seven spirits of God. Don't you love a mystery? 
well, there's the Holy Spirit, right? Well, I thought there's just like one Holy Spirit. There is. Seven spirits? What are they? Could be seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. You know, his compassion, his wisdom, his power, perhaps seven of them, maybe. Uh, They could be seven other spirit beings that live in heaven and serve God. Uh, but they are blazing like fire. There's like these pillars of fire in front of the throne and these seven spirits of God, whatever or whoever they are, their job is to burn with joy and, and bring glory to God, burn with worship. And, and everything around the throne points to the throne, right? They're all enhancements to the true glory that our eyes are all directed to. Same with the seven blazing spirits of God around the throne. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, glittering, as we said. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first, well, there's, there's several things we are told about these creatures and I guarantee you we've never seen anything like these they, they, they make me a little afraid like I'm not sure if I want to get too close to one of these creatures first of all we're told there's four of them <coughs> okay they're living mm-hmm. they're covered with eyes in front and in back back to that in a minute the first living creature was like a lion the second was like an ox the third was like a face of a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle Just a couple of possible thoughts here interpreting this. First one was like a lion. Lions have royalty and authority and dignity. Uh, The second one was like an ox. Oxes basically in scripture have to do with brute strength, with power and strength. Uh, The third one had a face like a man. And uh, man often uh, has to do with intelligence and creativity made in the image of God. And the fourth one was like a flying eagle, not just a sitting eagle, a flying eagle. They are swift, fast, uh, can track down their prey so, uh, so quickly, so accurately. Also, there's a phrase in scripture called being born on the wings of an eagle. And uh, perhaps they represent God carrying us or caring for us, his, his providential care under the safety of the wings of an eagle. Not sure. All of these are possibilities. But these four living beings and the four appearances that they have are saying four important things about God. His royalty and his dignity, his strength, his intelligence and creativity, and perhaps his providential care for his creatures. All being spoken to us in pictorial visible form in these four living beings. This is what John is seeing. They also have six wings. Back in Isaiah 6, Isaiah in his vision sees angels who are called seraphim. And there's cherubim and seraphim. And the seraphim are a high order of angels that stand and worship in front of God, according to Isaiah. And they have six wings. So it's quite possible that the living beings that John is seeing are seraphim with their six wings. And it says they cover their eyes, they cover their feet, and they fly with with the third pair of of uh, wings, majestic, whatever it is. They're covered with eyes. It says if you look under their wings, you'll see eyes. It's kind of like, what's under here? Whoa! You know, like all these 
eyes looking back at you. Did you ever feel your mother had eyes in the back of her head? Eyes like this usually mean in scripture omniscience, sees everything, knows everything, telling us that about God. That's really important. And they bear witness to that in their very being in the way that they're built and constructed and, and, and their presence in front of God. It's eyes covering them, seeing everything. I know it sounds weird, right? Like it looks weird, but it's not meant to be painted. It's meant to look at the details, and each detail tells you something about God. Omniscience sees everything. But the most important thing about the living beings is what they're saying. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is <coughs> and who is to come. They're declaring God's holiness. These living beings themselves are magnificent, fearsome, wonderful, spectacular, and before any one of them, you or I would fall on our face and try to worship them, wrongly, but we probably would. We would be so struck by them, and yet these spectacular creatures themselves are entranced with God. And I use the word entranced on purpose. I've got it here somewhere. <coughs> Basically, entranced, oh yeah, it means to fill someone with wonder and delight and to hold their entire attention. If you're entranced with Niagara Falls or the Milky Way, uh, you just sort of can't stop looking at it. That's the case with the living beings as they look upon the throne of God <coughs> and say over and over and over, holy, holy, holy. Theologian and author Don Carson says the holiness of God I was, I was interested in what he had to say about holiness because he's, he has such great insight. I was a little disappointed when he said, the holiness of God is surprisingly difficult to define. <laughs> Thanks, Don. <coughs> but we've come here to the essence of what God is. He's holy. The four living beings can't stop speaking it out. You know, if I moved out west to uh, <coughs> British Columbia and, and I had a house right in front of a massive mountain, every morning when I would come out the door, I'd go, oh, look at that mountain. That's awesome. And the, the next morning, awesome, amazing mountain. Next morning, but pretty soon, though, you know human nature, pretty soon I'd be walking right past it, wouldn't even notice it. But the four living beings can never stop noticing the holiness of God. It is that powerful and that mysterious and that essential to the very being of God. In fact, Don Carson said, the best I can do is to say is holiness is the godness of God. It's what makes him God. It's his most important quality, not his only quality. Love, wisdom, justice, compassion, all important. All, all through scripture, but holiness is sort of the bedrock on which they all stand. And that's what the living beings are seeing and talking about in heaven. 
A.W. Tozer writes about holiness. He says, we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. It's just something other than us. We are created. Everything we have to do with every day is created. The mountains are created. The stars are created. We're each created. We live in the world of created things. And when we meet God, we meet the uncreated. And it's very different. And all we can do is start saying, holy, holy, holy. Back to the 24 elders. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, fall down before him <coughs> and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. Remember those crowns? You don't get a crown for no reason have to be worthy of the crown that you wear. You've done something. You are something. There's something about you that's worthy of a crown. And yet, in, the, in front of God, they all take their crowns off and they have one thing to say, not me. You are worthy. He is worthy. And this is what they say in verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. <clears throat> For you created all things. And by your will, they were created and they have their being. <clears throat> I remember a me uh, an image in the media at the time of Princess Diana's death. Was that 1999, I think? And uh, she was much beloved by people all over the world, especially in the United Kingdom. And it was a tragic, sudden death that shocked everybody and people began coming to London for the funeral service and they were streaming into London and, uh, and, some, and they began to lay bouquets of flowers at the gates of Buckingham Palace. Remember that? And they did that for several days and I remember this image of a mountain it was as big as that wall, it seemed like to me. It was just a massive mountain of flowers. And the accumulation of all those flowers laid there said one thing. We love you. We honor you. And we miss you. And so here in Revelation, we have crowns laid before the throne of God. 24 magnificent crowns. But I think with one voice, they all say, we love you, we honor you, we worship you. I want to learn how to worship better and better. <coughs> I told you there was a problem. Let's see if I can explain it to you. This is a wonderful chapter. But there's a problem here. We have, we have all these magnificent explosion of colorful things. We have this mysterious throne. We have a sea of glass 
shining and glittering like diamonds in front of it. We have 24 mysterious elders surrounding the throne. We have these four living beings uh, uh, just absolutely blown away by what they're seeing on the throne. We have thunder, we have lightning, we have seven blazing pillars of fire declaring the glory of God. And uh, so we might look at that scene and say, is it majestic? Yes. Is it wonderful? Yes. Is it spectacular? Yes. Is it amazing and marvelous and majestic? Yes. And yes. And yes. Is God approachable? Not really. Who's going to go near that? There's an instinct in us, and the instinct for a child is to run to her mummy. But the instinct in a guilty sinner is to run away from that God who's so holy, so awesome. We wouldn't stand a chance there. What are we going to do? It's all true. It's all amazingly true. Thank God there's Revelation chapter 5. We'll go there next week, and we'll see if we can find God's solution to the problem. It involves a lamb who was slain. May it cause us to worship. Rico Sabatini is going to lead us now in the breaking of bread. In the breaking of bread, 